0: Our call to confession this morning is going to come uh, from the book of Isaiah. Last week we were in Isaiah 53. uh, This morning, back in the beginning of the book. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, this is what the Lord says to his people. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The book of Isaiah begins with the Lord uh, chastising his people uh, for their, uh, their particular and unique sinfulness. Uh, it, it's not a lack of worship that's the problem, right? It's, it's the mixture of... Uh, this pretense of worship where they um, are living in rebellion even in the midst of that. Uh, they're maintaining this kind of cultic system where they're coming before the Lord and they're bringing offerings and they're, they're maintaining the festivals and they're maintaining the sacrifices, uh, but there, there is no uh, heart in it. Right? There, there's no uh, desire in it. There's no righteousness in it. There's no desire to glorify and honor God in it. In fact, it's, it's a, as he says, it's a mixture of iniquity and solemn assembly. Uh, the Israelites have become truly become like the nations around them, assuming that their God will be satisfied simply by them maintaining uh, the practices that he gave them. So long as we do what God wants us to do, God will be happy just like the other gods of the nations. So long as we bring offerings, our God will be happy and all things will be well. But God is not like the God of the nations, and he demands, uh, he demands that his people do not treat him like the gods of the nations. And so he goes on to call them, Uh, You rulers of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah, for they truly have become just as sinful and just as wicked as those nations. But uh, just as the God of the scriptures is not like the God of the nations in that he cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly, what what, what sets him apart uh, biblically is uh, his immense uh, kindness and grace. Uh, Even in the midst of this rebuke, even in the midst of this chastisement, even in the midst of this this condemnation of his people, uh, God continues to hold out grace. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Time and time again as we go throughout the Bible, we are reminded of how gracious God is. How gracious, how kind, how loving, how patient, how forgiving he is. In fact, I would argue, and there maybe are some who would argue with me, that his grace and his kindness and his love and his ability and desire to forgive is far greater than we could ever begin to imagine. Uh, I think that, that we, as much as we, we rejoice in God's grace, we have really only begun to scratch the surface of how immense and wonderful it really, truly is. I think this is one of the great blessings that sits before us, is that there's, we see through a glass dimly now, right? There's coming a day when we will see clearly, and I think that includes seeing clearly the great depth of God's grace and kindness. And In fact, we could, I, I think it's not far off to say that, that eternity is in part spent plumbing the depths of his eternal kindness and grace and mercy and goodness towards us. Uh, Advent certainly is a time where we're reminded of his goodness, his kindness, and his grace as we look towards uh, the first coming of Christ and we set our eyes on the return of Christ. As we look at Christ, what are we looking at? We're looking at God's goodness and kindness and love and forgiveness and mercy uh, in human flesh God in flesh walking amongst us and so this morning as, as we come and we confess our sins our, our sins are real and, and and they're there and they're present and God does not delight in them he doesn't delight in the sins of his people he doesn't delight in our sins but at the same time God is a gracious kind and forgiving God and so we have every reason we are encouraged in, in every in every way that we possibly could be uh, to come before him to lay our sins before him and to know that he is far more gracious and kind than we could ever hope to imagine. So if you are able this morning, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins? It struck me a moment ago that I've had two people already this morning approach me about a haircut. And uh, I just want to say, back off, Uh, it's my hair, I'll do what I want with it. Um, And when the time comes to get a haircut, I eventually will. Um, I think my wife is reaching a breaking point, so it should be soon, but I refuse to pay American prices. Instead. I will buy a $2,000 ticket to India and then cut my hair. <laughs> All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter. That being said, because I know everybody's looking up here right now going, what's going on with that guy's head? But it's settled. Acts chapter 1. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. And, and I, again, a, a correction from last week. I, I, I spoke out of turn. I, I said that I was preaching last week and this week and then not for a while. I actually looked at the, the calendar, and I should probably do this more often. I preached the first Sunday in January, and then I'm gone for a long time. So one more Sunday after this, and then uh, gone for some time, not to a place where I will get my hair cut. But Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, let's hear the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be together. Uh, To to gather, uh, to worship, and to glorify you, to be encouraged by one another's faith, to be encouraged by the the truth that we confess, that Christ is Lord. And so, Father, we do pray as we look at your word that you would give us wisdom, Uh, Lord, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would expose sin, that you'd call us into righteousness, Father, that we would respond in obedience to your word, that you might be glorified in all things. And so we pray, Father, be glorified in Christ's name, amen. excuse me, it certainly does seem appropriate around Christmas time uh, to get into a little bit of a discussion concerning wants and needs. Uh, Christmas is a time uh, when uh, we typically get to set needs aside and for a moment or two kind of focus on wants. I don't know if your home is a lot like mine, but our kids have, uh, for as long as I can remember, made Christmas lists Little lists that they give to us, sometimes small, sometimes bigger, that have things that they would uh, eagerly uh, desire. Is a, that's an appropriate way to put it uh, for Christmas? And we have people coming in for Christmas. We've got aunts and uncles and grandparents coming in, and they message us and they say, "Hey, what are, what were the kids like for Christmas?" And Annie is diligent to send out these Christmas lists, and and they hope, right? The desire is uh, for kids on Christmas that when they open up a present, uh, it's it's more often than not going to be a want. Than a need. Now, I, I have found uh, as I've gotten older that the, the ratio starts to switch a little. It, it starts to move towards, like, uh, you know, away from G.I. Joe aircraft carriers and, and more towards, like, socks and ties. Uh, and initially, that's a, that's a shock to the system, right? Initially, you open up socks and you're like, I don't want socks. I want toys. I want G.I. Joes. But there is this weird point that comes where you're like, hey, socks isn't that bad. I'm running out of socks. Most of my socks have holes in them. I'm happy to have socks. And I'll just go ahead and say that that is a rather depressing turn when that happens. But uh, believe me, kids, it comes. There's a day when you're not that bummed when you open up a tie. Uh, I bring this up because wants and needs are slightly uh, kind of uh, at odds here in this short paragraph that we just read. Uh, The apostles, as they're sitting here with Jesus, want to know something. All right? They want to gather, garner information from Jesus. It's it's burning in their minds, it's burning in their hearts, and they want to ask him and they want to know. But Jesus isn't necessarily concerned with what they want as much as what they need. He turns their attention away from what they might want to know to what they need to know. And as it turns out, knowing about future things are things that are not their business. Rather, what is their business and what they need to know and where Christ directs their attention in this text is to the present task that they've been given and what is to occupy their time. So let's look at this passage together. As we look at this question that the disciples ask, I think it's right for us to consider or at least to think about all that lies behind this question, right? They look at Jesus and they say, "'Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?' Now we can only begin to imagine, I think, the level ex- of excitement that accompanies this question. I almost imagine them asking it, asking it to him like, like giddy little children who are kind of chomping at the bit, almost shaking as they're asking it. God, Jesus, is now the time that you're gonna do this. Right? Because think about the ride that these men have been on, right? So they spent three years with Jesus during his incarnation. Uh, full of excited yet erroneous messianic expectations, right? They had all these ideas of who he was going to be as the Messiah, and all of that kind of came crashing down as Jesus died on the cross. So for three years, their, their, their excitement's getting built up to this kind of fever pitch, even though a lot of what they think is wrong, and then it just crumbles... As they watch Christ die on the cross, this kind of transitions to a kind of a full-blown despondency and despair as Christ lays in the grave for three days. But then three days later, we go from despair and despondency back up to crazy levels of excitement as Christ is miraculously resurrected from the dead right an act which Paul says declares Jesus to be the son of God and power and now the disciples are sitting here with the risen lord and all they can think about and all their minds can focus on is kind of this, this imminent and immediate fulfillment of all of God's eschatological promises right they've they've got they've got centuries of history that have been that's been poured into them where where they've got all these expectations and promises of what God is going to do and how he's going to restore the kingdom of his people, how he's going to fill the earth with righteousness, how the nations will flood into Jerusalem. And and so the disciples are are looking at Jesus and and they are saying, you know what, we're here, right? We thought we were there. Uh, during his ministry, turns out we were wrong and he died and we're still figuring that out. But now he's resurrected and now certainly this is the time that he's going to bring all the stuff together that we've been waiting for and that's been promised. And so they finally have Jesus and they're sitting there saying, they say, listen, is now the time we've waited, we went through a lot, is now the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom of Israel. Is now the time that all the promises that God has made, all these hopes that he has has, given us and these assurances that he's given us is now the time that this is gonna happen. And so there's like this fever level of excitement, this fever pitch of excitement as they, they ask Jesus this question. And how does Christ respond? Well, Jesus effectively throws a wet blanket all over their excitement. He doesn't indulge their question at all. Look what he says to them. His response to them is, he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. This is like what, I, what happened in my home when I was young when every time I asked my mother what was for dinner. I, I liked to eat when I was a kid. I still like to eat now. I enjoy food. And so my mother was a good cook and she would often make a homemade, not often, I think always would make a homemade meal for us. That included a meal and a dessert. And so I'd almost come home every day and I'd say, mom, what's for dinner? Kind of excited, kind of get my appetite ready, right? Don't know what she's making, but it's going to be good. My mother's response was always the same, food. And no matter how many times I pressed, she always said the same thing, food. That's what's for dinner. I never understood why she did it. How difficult of a question is it? What are you making for dinner? But she just wouldn't answer it. So here the disciples are like, listen, what's going to happen? What's going on? Where are we moving? And what does Jesus say? He effectively says, food. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You're trying to dip into an area. You're trying to reach into a realm that is not yours to reach into. You're trying to plumb the depths of something that you're not meant to plumb. This is the Father's prerogative. And so Jesus just effectively crushes, crushes their expectations, throws a wet blanket on their excitement by saying, look, this this isn't for you to know. You want to know this, but I'm not going to tell you. It's not yours to know. Instead, what does Jesus do? He redirects their attention to what they need to know. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has affixed by, uh, affixed by his own authority, but, right, that but, grabbing their attention, pulling it away from things that they might want to know, from future things, heavenly things, pulling that away, and then redirecting it where? Redirecting it on the nations around them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The use of the future tense here by Jesus when he says you will receive power and you will be my witnesses almost carries this, this kind of like, um, uh, I don't want to say impartial, I can't even say the word, the, the sense of a command, right? A sense of a necessity. Let's put it that way. That's better. Sense of a necessity. So much so that we can replace you will receive power with you must receive power in that you cannot do what I've given you to do on your own and you must be my witnesses, in that you cannot keep in to yourself what you have seen, what you have witnessed, and what you have, uh, what you have experienced. And so Jesus says, you must receive power, and you must be my witnesses. Now this, as we, as we understand here, the second half of verse 7, uh, is kind of Luke's version of the Great Commission. All right? It is, in, in, in the context of Luke's double work of Luke Acts, it is a rather succinct summary of what Jesus has already told the disciples in Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. In Luke 24, at the close of Luke's gospel, Jesus is with his disciples, having been with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and opened up their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he comes and he finds the 12 disciples, and he cracks their minds open so they can understand the scriptures, and then he says to them, thus thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Right, so we see all the same elements in Acts 1 that we see here in Luke 24. This idea of going to all the nations, this idea of bearing witness, this idea of proclaiming the gospel, even the idea of needing to be clothed with power from on high. And so Jesus is redirecting their attention from where they want it to be to where it needs to be. This call or this commission that Christ has given His disciples to bear witness to the gospel in all the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit is what is meant to occupy their attention. It is what is meant to occupy their thoughts. It is what is meant to occupy their life. Right, their calling or their con- is not to concern themselves with the things that belong to the Lord. Right, we have an Old Testament uh, kind of not warning but an Old Testament declaration, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. It hasn't changed. There's secret things that belong to the Lord and they're the Lord's alone. Now, while we might, you know, every once in a while, I call it brain candy, right? Every once in a while, we might want to sit in a corner and chew on these things for fun. It's not what's meant to occupy our time, right? It's not what's meant to occupy our conversations, whether that's online or in person, right? What's meant to occupy our time and occupy our conversations is what has been entrusted to us, what has been given to us, and what has been entrusted to us, and what has been given to us is the message of the gospel, and we are meant to declare that message, right? The, the apostles' job is to bear witness concerning Christ, to go proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that forgiveness of sins is found through faith in Christ, declaring this to all the world. This is the work that God or Christ has given to His church. Now, this statement, the necessity of it, the importance of it, uh, the power of it, it is punctuated by Christ's departure. Right? As soon as this scene begins, it is brought to an end. Look at verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they come to Jesus. Are you going to restore the kingdom? Christ says, no, not for you to know. Here's what you need to know. You will receive power, you will be my witnesses in all the earth, J- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and that's the last thing he says. As soon as he's done saying that, he begins to ascend into the heavens. As soon as he finishes speaking with them, Jesus is taken up from their presence into the clouds and out of their sight. That, that, that's, that, that in, at least in part, serves to punctuate, to emphasize the importance of this commission and this command that he gives to his disciples. This is the last thing he says to them as they spend their last moments with him before he ascends into heaven. Now, the fact that he is taken out of their sight, however, does not stop the disciples from looking. If we go on to verse 10, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them. So even though Jesus is out of their sight, the disciples sit there and continue to stare up into the sky. In fact, they are looking so intently, right so consistently so kind of so powerfully with their gaze fixed into the sky that they don't even notice that there are two new men standing there among them two new men clothed in white a clear sign that these are angels and these angels come and they begin to question the disciples right they look at the disciples and they ask them a question look at verse 11 the two men stood by and they said to them men of galilee why do you stand looking into heaven So they're standing there. Jesus is ascending into heaven. Their gaze is literally fixed on heaven or or up, even though Jesus is out of their sight now, right? And these two guys show up, and they look at him and say, like, guys, why why are you staring up into the sky? Now, as we think about that question, right, and we kind of maybe put ourselves in that scenario, uh, the appropriate response might be from the disciples, why are you not looking up into heaven, right? Like, we would be shocked if we're all standing there and somebody's, like, you know, like, on their cell phone, like, playing a game. We're like, do you, like, did you see what just happened? Because, because I don't know what circles you move in, right? But it's not every day that I see, uh, let alone the resurrected Jesus, but a man kind of ascend into heaven, right? I mean, biblically, this has happened two other times Enoch and Elijah, the only other two that have kind of been taken out of sight in this way. So this isn't an everyday occurrence. So we would be shocked if the disciples were not looking up into heaven at this point. But what's interesting is that the the, the, the angels there, they're not concerned at all with the wonder of this moment. right? They're not concerned at all with the oddity of this moment. They're not concerned at all with the uniqueness of this moment. They're not sitting there going, yeah, this is kind of cool. It doesn't happen every day. They look at the disciples and they ask them a question. And really, it's a rebuke kind of cloaked as a question, right? It's a rebuke of these guys dressed up as a question. Why are you doing this? Why are you staring up into heaven? Now, this rebuke or this question, what is it grounded in? Well, it's grounded in the very final words of Jesus, right? Jesus said, don't set your mind on things that are not your purview. Don't set your mind on things that are not your, in, in, uh, fall under your concern. Don't set your mind on things that are, that are fixed by the Father's authority. You need to set your mind, guys, on the world around you. Christ has given them a clear target, and that clear target is the ends of the earth. And so the the angels ask this question, or better yet, rebuke the disciples because their eyes are set really in the wrong place. It's hard to move out into the nations looking up the whole entire time. I don't know if you've ever tried this before. Maybe you can do this when you get home. I would suggest you do it in a safe environment and under qualified supervision. but see how far you can make it in your day if you just look up all the time. Walk around your house, maybe around your neighborhood, but do it without looking at anything in front of you, but just with your eyes pointing at the sky the whole entire time, and tell me how well that goes for you. My guess is it's not going to go very well. Now, you might have some idea of where things are in your house, but if you have kids, guess what happens? Things that were in a place don't stay in that place. They end up all over the place. And if you have kids with Legos, good luck with that. You certainly want to look down if there's Legos on the floor, right? So the angels look at him and say, you need to stop. Essentially, you've got to stop looking up. Like you have something to do. You've been given a task. You've been entrusted with a work from Christ, and it cannot happen if you're standing here and staring up into the sky. Now, what's really interesting about, uh, about Acts as a whole is it, it really does take a, a little bit to get the church going. Right, like if, if you read Acts, what does Jesus say? Jesus says you're going to start in Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, and you're going to go to the ends of the earth. He gives them a very clear target, the end of the earth. But if you, look, if you read the book of Acts, the first eight chapters, where has where the church gotten to in the first eight chapters? Jerusalem. Like they, and they have no sign or, or kind of intention other than the, you know, the, the, the Pentecostal sermon which sent some people out. Uh, the, the church as a whole in Jerusalem doesn't seem to have any intention of moving outside of Jerusalem. So what does God do? This, this is where, this is where we, we have to marvel at the, I don't want to say creativity, but he is a creative God at the, at the wonder of what God does. How does God get his church? How does he get their butt moving in Acts chapter nine? Acts chapter 8 eight and a half. Uh, a guy named Saul starts to persecute the heck out of the church, right? He starts to persecute the church so badly that what happens? The church starts to scatter, The church starts to scatter out because Paul is breathing such threats against the church in Jerusalem. To the extent that they scatter out and they plant a church where? Do you know where one of the churches gets planted? Antioch, right? One of the churches gets planted in Antioch. Then between Acts 9 and Acts 13, what happens? Paul gets converted. Paul gets converted on the road to Damascus. And then what happens in Acts 13? He gets sent out by the church in Antioch. Like, Is that not the coolest thing in the world? Like God, he raises up Saul, persecutes the church, so the church spreads out, so a church gets planted in Antioch, then he converts Paul, right, Saul converts him to the extent that he is then sent out by a church that was planted because of his persecution against the church. Like if you don't, like if you don't think that's cool, I seriously do have problems with you. I'm just going to be completely honest. That is the coolest thing in the world, that God operates that way. But we do see that as church has a hard time getting things going. And it begins here in the beginning. Guys, stop looking up. You have something to do. Now, this, this question or this rebuke is followed by uh, a promise. right? It's followed by a promise. So if we look at verse 11 again, it says, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go in to heaven. And so the angels rebuke them, but then they, they assure them or they encourage them that, that Jesus will come back. Jesus is coming back. He is taken up from them into heaven, but this is for a time. A time according and affixed by the Father's own authority is for a time, but then Jesus will come again. Now, I think there's a twofold impact to this on the disciples. On the one hand, this promise is a source of great encouragement, hope, and assurance it assures the disciples it assures the church it assures us that jesus will return right during his earthly ministry jesus promised to return and take his people to be with him where he was and here again that promise is further emphasized yes he's gone up into heaven but this is for a time he will come back so it encourages the disciples jesus says multiple times i will not leave you as orphans Christ will not leave his people, he will not abandon us. In fact, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, what does he say? I'm with you always, even now he's with us. Yes, it's through the Holy Spirit, but there's a time that he's coming back. And so this is assurance, this is hope. This, this is encouragement for the disciples that Christ will return. On the other hand, I think this promise is a means of driving obedience. right? Driving the apostles to obedience. Right, the fact that Christ will return assures the disciples that the one who gave them the task will return with the expectation that they are found doing the task. Right, we understand this concept. If you have children, right? if you give them a chore, if you give them something to do, right? first when they start off with these little ones, you help them do that. right? You help them do the chore, whatever it might be. Like Riley, we're getting her to clean up her toys. I don't look at Riley and say, "Hey, I'll be back in 10 minutes. I want this room picked up. What do I do?" I say, "All right, Riley, let's clean up your toys. We put on the Coco Melon cleanup song, and then we sit down and we work on cleaning up her toys. She picks up some toys. I redirect her attention, which she's gone off like a squirrel, right? And so we help her do it. But you're training your children, Lord willing, to the point where you can give them and trust them with a task. You can be absent, and you can come back and you can find either that task done or them still doing that task, right? You want to find them at work. Or you want to find the work done. So Jesus, knowing that Jesus comes back, tells the disciples, listen, you've been given something to do, and the one who gave you that task is coming back with the full expectation that you're going to be found doing what you were told to do. I mean, consider the words of warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 as he's giving parables about the kingdom. He says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food, their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come a day when he does not expect him and then an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I don't know, this, this is just an aside, but I, I do love the fact that we've kind of, we've kind of turned Jesus into this cuddly fuzzball that, that only says nice and sweet things, right? He preaches this message of just like blanket forgiveness and acceptance and all this kind of stuff. And yet here's Jesus saying, like telling a parable, saying, listen, come back and find the wicked servant acting wickedly, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna get cut up into pieces. Cut up into pieces and cast down out the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right, we think about what was read this morning from... Um, the parable of the tenants. Uh, at least, uh, like uh, the part of the 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 meaning or the point of the parable of the tenants is that the master who's gone away on a long journey expects to come back and find those whom he entrusted with talents doing something with those talents. So that the one who buried the talent, just so he can make sure he gave back to his master that which was his, is the one who is chastised. He's the one who is punished, not the one who did work with the talents. Right, So this idea that Christ is coming back, I shouldn't say this idea, this promise, this assurance that Jesus is coming back to, given to the disciples in this situation, screams to them, obey, stop looking into heaven and get to work at what Christ has called you to do. Do the task that he's called you to do because he is coming back. Now, as we read this, I don't think it's very difficult for us to work out some clear application in our own lives. Right, the task that was given to the disciples is still our task today. The, the commission that Christ has given to his church is the commission under which we live and move. We are called to bear witness to Christ Jesus. We are called to declare the gospel. Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe last week or the week before, we were in men's breakfast. And I, want, I don't want to still spill too many of the secrets um, because it is very secretive. But uh, Arnie made the statement, I believe, about uh, being in full time ministry. And, and Arnie said something to the effect if you don't think you're in full time ministry, you're crazy. I don't know, he might not have used the word crazy, but you're wrong. We're, we're all, all of us are involved in full time ministry. All of us stand, live, move, breathe under the commission that Christ has given to his church. We are all called to go into the ends of the earth and to declare the greatness and the glory of Christ Jesus. Now, it happens in different ways. Sure, but we're all called to this work. Whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, we are called to bear witness to Christ. Now, I'm not quoting Francis of Assisi here. Sometimes that happens directly through preaching and speaking the gospel. Yes, yes. I would say that's the most effective way to communicate the gospel. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So declare the gospel. It also comes in the way that we live. It also comes in the way that our homes are structured. So that when people come into our homes, our homes should be this tangible example of the gospel. And that doesn't mean perfection. Don't hear me say perfection. Because none of us have a perfect home. None of us have perfect relationships. We're all sinful. We're all broken. We're all moving towards Christ, moving in this direction of sanctification. But what a gospel-saturated home looks like is a home where relationships do get broken or where they do get in trouble. They're mended quickly, right? Like uh, I said before, we keep short accounts. And so it's not just proclaiming the gospel. it's, It's being an example of the gospel. All of us are called to this commission to make Christ known, Now, just like the apostles and uh, those who have gone before us, it becomes very easy for us also to become distracted. Now, our distraction might not be standing out in the field, staring up at heaven, watching somebody go up into the clouds. I don't necessarily think that's going to be our distraction, but we have a multitude of other distractions that will come our way. Sometimes that looks like getting involved in conversations or things of which we don't need to be involved in. Right? This began with the disciples wanting to know something that wasn't theirs to know. If you peruse the internet at all, The internet is never lacking on conversations that you should not get involved in, (laughs) right? Like, my wife gets on me all the time. Every once in a while, I'll, because I'm I'm, I'm sarcastic. About 98% of me is sarcasm, and 2% is other things. And you know what doesn't communicate through emails or text messages? sarcasm it's really difficult like italics don't do it quotes I've tried everything it doesn't work out so every once in a while I'll jump into a conversation with a sarcastic comment and then I get sucked in and I'm like I don't want to be here how did I get in here didn't they understand this was a joke I didn't mean that and it's just it's ridiculous and it becomes a distraction right? the world is full of distractions that want to grab our attention and take them away from what we're set to do And what we need to hear is this rebuke of the angels constantly ringing our ears. Why are you looking at that? Why are your eyes staring at heaven? Why are you involved in this conversation? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you not doing what Christ has called you to do? Because the same promise that sits over the apostles is the same promise that sits over us. Christ is coming back. Like, like if, if our lives... are are movies, like, spoiler alert, like, we know how it ends, (laughs) like, like, if you ever read movie reviews online, I do this sometimes when it's a movie I'm not going to want to see, and they always say, like, at the top, you know, spoilers ahead, well, this is, like, one big giant spoiler alert, right, like, we know how it ends, it ends with Christ coming back, he hasn't come back yet, that's another spoiler, just in case you were wondering, I think I I I told you about the guy who was involved with a Bible study one time that said the second coming had already come, I was like, that's problematic, but he hasn't come back. We know he's coming back. So the same exhortation of encouragement and assurance, Jesus will return, is also the same kind of like drive to obey that it was to the disciples originally. Like he's coming back and he expects to find us, his church, doing what he's called us to do. And that's not burying our talents like in this room, hunkering down, staying together because we don't want to mess things up. That's us going out into the marketplace, going out into the world, investing ourselves, taking risks at times, right? Taking risks at times for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want to stay in our own little safety bubble, like boy in the bubble kind of thing, we're not going to get very far in what Christ has called us to do. Like the Bible is full of like agrarian imagery, right? Farming imagery. You know what farmers are? They're like dirty folk. They got dirty hands, dirty clothes. My horticulture, horticulture teacher told me that it's soil when it's in the ground, it's dirt when it gets on your clothes. So they're covered in dirt from the soil that was on the ground. They're dirty folks because they're out there doing things. They're planting and hoping and praying that something will come from it, but they're planting nonetheless. Like we're called to go out, to invest, to work, to do for the glory of Christ Jesus because our master is coming back, right? Is that not partly what we celebrate at Advent? We set our attention to the future, eager expectation and longing at the advent of Christ, the return of Christ, because we know that when he comes back, he will set all things right. But when he comes back, we also know that he comes back with reward. Right? The Bible is full of this kind of promise and hope as well. So in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is writing to fellow elders, and, and Peter encourages them to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. right? And he gives them uh, ways in which are to do that, and, and he closes this exhortation of how to shepherd the flock that's among you by saying, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he looks at elders, shepherds over congregations, and he says, shepherd well shepherd well not under compulsion but willingly not for greedy gain but but eagerly shepherd well because the chief shepherd's coming back the chief shepherd's coming back and with him comes reward and recompense and if you are found shepherding as you're called a shepherd he's going to return with a crown of glory paul paul uh, uses the same kind of thought to the church as a whole so paul speaks (coughs) excuse me and he says this he says henceforth There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So those who have loved his appearing, desired his appearing, eagerly expect and long for his appearing, and who are living their lives in light of that, in light of the fact that Christ is coming back Paul promises there's a reward, this crown of righteousness, which Christ himself will reward you. He will award to you. He will give you. I don't know about you. I haven't gotten a ton of awards in life. I've got some good ones. I don't want to brag. Uh, I think when I was like in third or fourth grade, I got the Presidential Academic Fitness Award uh, in a letter signed by the Ronald Reagan and another letter from then-Vice President George Bush. Um, I got an award for football one time. And I'll be honest with you. It feels kind of good getting an award. It feels kind of good standing there. They call your name. You get to come up. They clap. You get handed a little tiny plaque. That's encouraging. How much better, right? Like the king of all kings rewards you. Like the king of all 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 the universe, the one who sits enthroned in heaven, gives you an award, a crown of righteousness for faithfully, longing for and eagerly expecting his appearing and living in light of it. And then lastly, we looked at this passage last week, and this is, this is the greatest thing, right? But 1 John 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Ultimately, as we look forward to the coming of Christ, what do we look forward to? We look forward to the transformation of our bodies. Uh, we, We look forward to the resurrection of our bodies, is what the Apostle Paul calls it. We look forward to Christ setting all things right, and us finally being all that we were created to be finally being all that we were created to be. And so we look forward to Christ's return. We labor at the task that he has given us because we know that our Savior is coming back. And we want to be found faithful when our Savior returns. We want to be faithful when the one who gave his life on the cross to purchase our redemption. So that you and I could have the hope of everlasting life. To know that our sins are forgiven. To know that we are freed. To know that we are loved. To know that we are accepted. To know that we are redeemed. When that one comes back, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found faithful. Because he gave his life so that I could have life. So how dare I waste the life that he has given me on lesser things? Oh, church, brothers and sisters, let us live our life as Christ has called us to live our lives, bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when our Savior does return, he finds us faithful and he is glorified in our labors and we rejoice and are glorified in his coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that Christ is returning. We praise you and thank you, Father, at this time of year. As we think of Advent, we are setting our mind. We're setting our attention on the coming of Christ. We're we're turning our attention uh, to his return, eager, expectation, longing. And Father, as we do that, uh, may we be reminded of the task that you've given us, Maybe be reinvigorated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we cannot do it, just as the disciples could not do it apart from the power on high. We cannot do it apart from your Spirit who dwells within us. So, so, Father, invigorate us according to the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that you've given us to do, so that in all things you would be glorified and that the gospel of Christ Jesus would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so that being said, would you please stand with me and receive from the word the blessing of Christ upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week rejoicing in the fact that Christ will return and let us be busy doing what he has called us to do.